Shalom Aleichem and welcome back to Sefer Maccabim. Last time we learned how Trifon lured Yonatan into Akka and subsequently slaughtered his men and took him prisoner. When we left off at the end of the chapter, the Jews are mourning Yonatan's fate and also are extremely afraid because now the surrounding nations have gained courage and are preparing to fight against them to wipe them out. It's not just them, Trifon himself has also raised an army in Akka and is intending to declare war on Judea. Chapter 13 begins when Shimon, the last son of Matityahu, sees how his people are becoming deeply afraid and losing heart. So he goes to Yerushalayim and gathers them in the Azara of the Beit HaMikdash, and he gives them the following speech. You yourselves have seen what I and my brothers have done for you, the battles we have fought and the suffering we have endured on behalf of our Torah and our Beit HaMikdash, so much so that all my brothers have been slain for our people's sake, and I alone am left. But I am no better than my brothers that I should live, and God forbid I should choose to spend my life rather than perish for our law. I will show that I too am worthy of being called their brother, and I will surely avenge their blood and preserve you, your wives, your children, and our Beit HaMikdash from all the nations who wish to destroy us. It's truly an inspiring speech. Shimon promises to lead the Jews to victory as courageously and selflessly as his brothers. And his speech does the job. The people who previously were downcast are encouraged, and they pledge, just as we followed your brothers Yehuda and Yonatan, so shall we follow you. Go and fight our battles, and whatever you command us, we shall do. They accept his authority unanimously and appoint him as the new Kohen Gadol. Shimon's first move is to hasten to finish the job Yonatan started by building up and fortifying the walls around Yerushalayim, because these walls have already been broken down, and he doesn't want Trifon to arrive and march straight through the broken walls into the city. He also sends some forces to capture Yaffa because he doesn't want Trifon capturing the city. But Trifon doesn't try to capture Yaffa. Instead, he heads straight for Yerushalayim, and with him, he brings Yonatan as his prisoner. Shimon goes out with his army to meet Trifon's army, and they meet at a place called Adida. When Trifon realizes that Shimon is now leading the people, he slyly offers him a deal. If you hand over to me a hundred talents of silver and two of Yonatan's sons as hostages, I'll release your brother. Now this puts Shimon in a very tough situation. On the one hand, he doesn't trust Trifon as far as he can throw him. On the other hand, if he doesn't comply and Trifon kills his brother, people will forever be able to say that Shimon was responsible for Yonatan's death. Shimon explains the situation to his officers and reluctantly sends Yonatan's sons and the silver over to Trifon. As expected, Trifon does not release Yonatan, but begins marching his army all over Judea, intending to cause as much damage as possible, and he wants to save Yerushalayim for the last. But wherever Trifon goes, Shimon blocks him with his army. Trifon isn't able to get a foothold in Judea. Pretty soon, he starts to get fed up, especially that he's hauling around Yonatan and two of his sons everywhere. Now, remember how in the previous chapter, Yonatan built a wall around the Acre so that no one could get in or out? Well, he did his job well. Supplies in the besieged Acre are rapidly dwindling, to the point where the mercenaries and Hellenist Jews who are staying there are forced to send a message to Trifon requesting food, because they are very rapidly running out. So Trifon plans to help them, and ascend to Yerushalayim that very night, coming from the east via the Judean desert. But that night there's a heavy snowfall and he can't make it, so he calls it off. At this point Trifon decides he's just about had enough of Judea, and he decides to leave. First he travels to Betshan, where he realises he doesn't need Yonatan as a hostage anymore. He murders him and orders him buried there. Then Trifon returns with his army back to Antioch. Shimon has Yonatan's bones retrieved 
and brought to burial with his father's and his brother's bones in Modi'in. And there's a great mourning period for Yonatan, the wonderful leader who served as Kohen Gadol for four years and brought the Jews through so much. To immortalize his brothers, Shimon built a huge monument of white marble on their gravesite, and seven more large and beautiful pyramids, one for each member of his family. This monument can be seen from a great distance away, even from the Mediterranean Sea, and serves as a beautiful reminder to the self-sacrifice of Matityahu and his sons, and all they did for Bnei Israel. Unfortunately, the monuments and pyramids are not there today, but we do know that they stood for more than 200 years, because Josephus, who wrote his antiquities at the end of the first century CE, testifies in them that the pyramids, I quote, have been preserved to this day. Now, Trifon returns to Antioch, kills the young king Antiochus, and claims the throne for himself. Unfortunately, he's a really rubbish ruler, and brings the whole Seleucid Empire to ruin. Shimon eyes his chance, and sends men to Demetrius with a gold crown and a scarlet robe, and the following message. Trifon is doing a really bad job at ruling. We are willing to back you as emperor, on condition that you free us from all tributes we were previously paying to you. You can see here how Shimon is following in Yonatan's footsteps. He doesn't care much whether Trifon or Demetrius rules the Seleucid Empire, but he's willing to exploit the situation to advance his own goal of Judean independence. And sure enough, his tactics work. Demetrius sends back a message agreeing to Shimon's request and formally releasing Judea from any tributes or taxes imposed on them by the Seleucid Empire, effectively agreeing to a peace treaty. And believe it or not, this is it. The war is won. The land has been liberated. The Jews are no longer subject to foreign taxes or tributes. For the first time in over 300 years, since Nebuchadnezzar invaded Eretz Israel, the Jews are officially independent. The Maccabim have finally accomplished what they set out to do a generation earlier. The book of Maccabees words it as follows. And the yoke of the nations was removed from upon the children of Israel. And from then they began to write in their chronicles and their documents in the first year of Shimon the Kohen Gadol, the governor and leader of the Jews. Note that while Shimon assumes the titles of Kohen Gadol and Nasi, meaning prince, he does not assume the title of Melech, king, for reasons we shall discuss in future episodes. The date on which Bnei Israel finally declare independence is the 18th of Elul, and it's proclaimed as a public holiday, just like Yom Nikonar and the 28th of Shabbat. So it's interesting to think about the fact that Yom Atzmurt on the 5th of Iyar is not the only Jewish independence day. That was the date we declared independence from Britain, but here we declared independence from Greece. Maybe we should begin having barbecues on the 18th of Elul too. However, just because the Jews are now free, that does not mean they can rest on their laurels. There's still a significant Hellenistic presence in the land, not least in the Acre. Under Shimon's rule, the Jews capture several idolatrous cities, including Gaza, and they cleanse them of Greek idols. And then they turn back to the Acre, their main project. By now, the Hellenists and mercenaries in the tower are completely desperate. They're out of food and many are dying from hunger. When the Jews besiege the tower, the situation becomes completely unbearable for them, and they beg Shimon for mercy. Graciously, Shimon agrees. He lets them out of the tower and sends them away. When Shimon enters the tower, the Jews make a huge celebration with numerous musical instruments and much singing and waving of lulavin, because the stronghold of the Greek occupation, which caused the Jews so much sorrow and pain, has finally fallen into their hands. This happens on the 23rd of Iyar which is declared yet another public holiday. After the celebrations, 
Shimon gathers the people and tells them that now they're going to raise the Acre to the ground to completely eradicate any sign the Greeks were ever here. And also, in case any other foreign nation should invade in the future, that they will have nowhere to launch their attacks from. The people are eager to carry out Shimon's will, which shows just how completely they have accepted him as their leader, because they know that he is only looking out for them. It takes them three years, but eventually they demolish the Acre, and Shimon orders that the mountain upon which it stood should be completely levelled and made lower than Harhabayat. This brings us nicely to the end of chapter 13, and it certainly closes on a much happier note than the previous chapter. But don't go away just yet, there's still much to come in this series on the Book of Maccabees. P.S. If you've listened or read this far, then first of all, thank you, seriously. Secondly, it probably means that you're at least reasonably interested in learning about the Maccabean Revolt. If that's true, there's a book I'd like to recommend to you. It's called My Glorious Brothers, written by the author Howard Fast, and it tells the Maccabean Revolt through the eyes of Shimon, how he grew up in Madian, witnessed the increasing Hellenization of Judea, and launched the revolt with his brothers. It's truly an utterly amazing book, and although I'm really biased, I cannot recommend it enough. It's possible to buy a hard copy on eBay or Amazon, but I suggest searching it on Audible, where if you opt for a 30-day free trial, you can listen to the audiobook for free. I've included a link to it at the bottom of the transcript.